0: Thank you to our music team, appreciate you guys, an appropriate song to sing as we come now to the pinnacle of our worship. It's a common misunderstanding to call the music portion worship and the rest of it just whatever you want, what you have to endure. But the reality is what we do here, everything we do here is worship. We come now to the highest point of that worship. We have been speaking to God, but now through his word, God speaks to us. So let me ask you then to open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter one. We're gonna begin a new study, a new series through the gospel according to Mark. And I just have to say, I don't think I've ever been this excited for whatever that's worth. Uh, I cannot wait to preach through the gospel of Mark with you. I had considered possibly as I have done in the past, talking about doing a sermon on why we should study the gospel of Mark. And uh, I I basically had that ready already through the week and then I just ditched it because we just have to get started. We just have to get into the actual text itself. So this morning we start that new study through the gospel of Mark. It's a, a gospel that was written according to Mark, a man who's... Other parts of scripture referred to as John Mark, the man whose mother was a prominent uh, individual within the church in Jerusalem. In fact, the church met in her house, and it's believed and that even the Last Supper was eaten in the upper room of her house as well. He was not an apostle, but he was very close with the apostle Peter. You may remember from 1 Peter chapter 5 that the apostle Peter calls Mark his beloved son. And so they had a close, close, tight-knit relationship. And so that's what gives this book the authority and the weight to be in Scripture. It's not written by an apostle, but by a close associate of an apostle with the oversight of the Holy Spirit and the oversight of the apostle as well. Papias from church history said this about this gospel. Papias died in about 130 AD, which meant uh, he was alive to be taught by the apostle John himself. So he knows what he's talking about. He said, Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all that he remembered, not indeed in order of the things said or done by the Lord. For Mark had not heard the Lord, nor had he followed him. But later on, as I said, followed Peter, who used to give teaching as necessity demanded, but not making, as it were, an arrangement of the Lord's oracles, so that Mark did nothing wrong in thus writing down single points as he remembered them. For to one thing he gave attention, to leave out nothing of what he had heard and to make no false statements in them. In other words, Mark took the preaching of Peter and he wrote it down with the intentional oversight of the Holy Spirit and with the help of Peter and this now is what we have in the gospel according to Mark. It bears striking similarity to the themes that we saw in first Peter because it's really Peter's preaching and so one of the most significant things that you encounter in the gospel of Mark is the idea that Jesus is of course the son of God But he's the son of God who came to be the suffering servant that Isaiah had prophesied so long ago. And so let me ask you then to follow along with me as I read from the first eight verses of the gospel according to Mark. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes one who is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Speak, O Lord. Speak, O Lord. Plant the words of your truth deep in us, shape and fashion us for your glory. Reveal to us, Holy Spirit, the glory and the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps some for the very first time, perhaps others for the 1,000th time, Either way, take us deep into the glory that is the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe what you say, God, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so together we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said I had prepared and was preparing a message about why we should study the gospel of Mark, but I was just too eager to actually get into the gospel according to Mark. And I think rather than giving you the five points that I had prepared, perhaps with some extras, we could certainly brainstorm for years why we should study the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But rather than do that, I thought that we would just sum it up with one overall overarching main point of why we study the gospel of Mark, to think deeply about Jesus. There are countless things that compete for our attention. There are countless now avenues to get into our minds to compete for that attention. We carry around computers that leave us in a condition of constantly being interrupted by a text message or a news alert. We have television, which maybe we should throw away sometimes. We have countless things to distract ourselves and to compete for our attention, but the reality is that every single one of them pales in comparison to the subject of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the writer of Hebrews told us to run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, he meant that we should never stop looking to Jesus. That as we live our Christian lives, we must never take our eyes off of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet... Our experience tells us how easy it is to fall into the temptation to do that very thing. In high school, I played football and was a wide receiver. The number one rule for every wide receiver is keep your eyes on the ball. Almost every single time a wide receiver drops a pass from a quarterback, I know I'm talking football language, but Try to go with me here. Almost every single time a wide receiver drops a pass from the quarterback, it's because he takes his eyes off of the ball and instead fixes his eyes upfield to make a move before he actually catches the ball. And so as a wide receiver, you're taught to look the ball into your hands, watch it hit your hands, and then look up the field in order to make your move. Nine times out of ten, Maybe 9.9 times out of 10, the ball is dropped because the eyes are taken off of the ball. Well, in a much more crucial way, it is the responsibility and the delight of the Christian to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, to keep our eyes on him And once again, our experience tells us what happens when we fail to do that. We drop the ball. We either blow it entirely in sin, or we begin to get an inflated view of ourselves, and our propensity towards self-righteousness begins to take over, and we somehow think that we're not so bad after all. Maybe God kind of needs us, or at least a church certainly needs us. We've got a lot to offer. But we understand that in the Christian life, if we are going to run the race with endurance that is set before us, then we must never stop looking to Jesus. And yet, there is nothing the Christian wants more than to keep looking to Jesus. You see, it is an obligation to keep looking to Jesus, but it's also a delight to keep looking to Jesus. Those who love Jesus just want more of him. They're consumed by that love, if it's a true love. And so we come then to the gospel according to Mark, so that we might keep our eyes fixed firmly on Jesus, to perhaps establish new love for him as God might grant you new faith in Jesus Christ and also to take that existing love even down deeper. So as we looked this morning then at the gospel according to Mark and in particular at these first eight verses, I want point to out, point out for us three things that we need to pay attention to at the very beginning of this gospel. These first 13 verses are the what's often called the prologue or the introduction, but we won't have enough time to look at all of those. You know we won't. So we'll look at the first eight verses as we think about the very beginning of the gospel. I want us to think first of all about the significance of this gospel in verse one the deep roots of this gospel in verses two to three, and then the witness to this gospel in verses four to eight. So first of all, let's think about the significance of this gospel. Mark begins his writing with these words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Matthew began his writing with a genealogy of Jesus, tracing his roots and his lineage back to Abraham to show you that he was the fulfillment of the promises that God had given Abraham. Luke began his writing with a word to Theophilus, stating that he wanted him, Theophilus, to have certainty about the message of Jesus Christ that he had heard, so that his faith would be strong and stable in the midst of a world that wanted to nothing more than to tear down his faith. John began his writing by reaching all the way back into eternity past and telling us about the Word who was God and became flesh. And Mark begins in his own style by getting straight to the point. He wants his readers to know that his writing is in his own style, or he wants his readers to know that what he is About to tell them that what they are about to read is the good news about a person named Jesus. This, says Sinclair Ferguson, is, quote, not a good advice about how to live, but good news about a person. And it's crucial that as we approach the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we understand that this is not some path of morality. This is not do this and you'll be good with God. This is, you can do nothing in order to be good with God, but this one, Jesus Christ, not only is good with God, but is God, pays for your sins for you, died and rose again and ascended to the Father, will come back for you, gives you his Holy Spirit and all by faith in him. By resting the entirety of your life on this person, the person of Jesus Christ. From the very beginning, we see that Mark's style is fast-paced, and we'll notice as we read throughout, and you probably already know this, that one of his favorite words is immediately. Mark just keeps moving and moving and moving on and on and on. He doesn't camp out for very long. Mark's primary concern is not so much about what Jesus said, but what Jesus did. Why? Because Mark is saying to you, look, this one is the Son of God. Believe in him, embrace him. Follow him. So the very idea that greets us in this gospel as we come to it is the significance of this gospel. This gospel, this good news is about Jesus Christ. And it's so monumental that Mark uses language that takes us back to Genesis chapter 1. Note what he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Does that jog your memory? How does the Bible begin? In the beginning, God created. How does Mark's gospel begin? The beginning of You see, Mark wants his readers to understand that what you are about to read, indeed, what you are about to encounter, is so monumental, is so epic, that it is on the level of creation itself. And indeed, we know that Jesus came to establish a new creation. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, behold, the new has come. A new creation, meaning that all those crummy things you beat yourself up for, if you are in Christ, is just a waste of time. Because you're a new creation now, if you are in Christ. So Mark wants us to see the overwhelming significance of this gospel. Mark wants you to know, in fact, the Holy Spirit wants you to know that what you are about to read has the power to totally change your life. To make you a part of this new creation. And yet what we are about to read is not so much about what we read, but the one that we read about. You see, the gospel is news, but the new reality of this gospel, and it's not just news, but actually the gospel is embodied in a person that must be embraced by faith and must be followed in discipleship. Mark wants us to understand that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not the biography of Jesus Christ, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. As you read this, you certainly will gather biographical information, but that's not the point. Don't ever turn your Bible reading and Bible study into a mere intellectual exercise, period. The point is to experience this truth, to embrace it for what it is and to live in the realities of it. Rather, the point, instead of seeing this as biographical information, is to soak up the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be completely caught up in this good news, to hear this gospel proclaimed to you and every time you hear it, to embrace it by faith. Whether it's for the first time or it's for the one millionth time. And therein lies the temptation for Christians. I've heard this before, I've studied this before. Friend, as soon as you let your mind go there, you're in trouble. Today, when we hear the word gospel, we have our own understanding of it. If you have a right understanding of it, then you understand that it's the truth about Jesus Christ. Other times, when you ask someone what's the gospel, they'll say, well, it's four books of the Bible that tell the story about Jesus. Not wrong, but not really right, the word gospel literally means good news. Euangelion is the Greek word. And it was a word that has a different meaning in different varieties. It was used especially in the Old Testament, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, and in the Greek world to speak about battle, uh, uh, victory in battle. It was a war word. When your army won, runners were sent back to town to proclaim euangelion gospel gospel good news good news and the town would celebrate because that meant you you won and it meant that there was not an invading army about to come and wipe you out later on the word came to be associated with other forms of good news just kind of a general catch-all of good news Caesar Augustus was the emperor that was, that was on the throne of Rome when Jesus himself was born. And in 9 BC, just about nine years before Jesus' birth, it was declared that Caesar Augustus' birthday was, quote, signaled the beginning of good news or gospel for the world. So, When Mark wrote and when the apostles preached that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, it wasn't something that the people had never heard before. They heard all kinds of gospels. And so the historical context that the gospel of Jesus Christ was set in is one of hearing all kinds of supposed gospels. Jesus Christ's gospel was completely opposed to every other gospel, including, and especially at that time, the gospel of Caesar. Roman legend viewed their emperors as gods or even sons of God, which is the significance of the phrase son of God in the New Testament. And it was actually thought, by, according to legend, that Caesar Augustus was conceived by a serpent, which is weird and kind of gross. One ancient writing about him was found, and it says this, the eternal and immortal nature of all things graciously granted the wonderfully good Caesar Augustus to perform good deeds in abundance to men in order that they might enjoy prosperity of life. He is the father of his divine homeland, Rome, inherited from his father Zeus, and a savior of the common folk. His foresight not only fulfilled the entreaties of all people, but surpassed them, making peace for land and sea. While cities bloom with order, harmony and good seasons, the productivity of all things is good and at its prime, for there are found hopes for the future and goodwill during the present, which fills all men so that they ought to bear pleasing sacrifices and hymns End quote." And of course, what was meant by bearing those sacrifices and singing those hymns was that they ought to worship Caesar because he was good news. But Mark wants his readers to know that over against all the other gospels that they may hear, this is the one and only gospel of Jesus Christ. It tells the good news about a man named Jesus, who is the promised king in the line of David and the very son of God. This is what's meant by the titles that Mark explains are attributed to Jesus. Jesus, of course, is his human name. The angel appeared to Joseph and told Joseph that Mary would conceive by the Holy Spirit and that he was to name the child's name Jesus, which means Yahweh is salvation. And the reason he was supposed to name the child Jesus, the angel said, is because he will save his people from their sins. Go and tell the Jehovah's Witness, Jesus is the real Jehovah. Christ is not his last name, but it's actually his title. The Hebrew word is Messiah. The Greek word in English, of course, is Christ. It's all referring back to the promise that God made to David, the covenant that he gave to David, that through the line of David, God would build a kingdom and would put a king on that throne forever. So what's Mark telling us? What are the gospel writers telling us about Jesus? They're saying the king is here. And in those days, they had all kinds of ideas of what the Messiah, what the Christ would be. And most especially, the the biggest thought, the most popular thought, the thought that they loved the most, was that he would be a conquering king who would wipe out Rome and establish the kingdom to Israel once again. But they didn't understand That they had a bigger problem than Rome. That their sin created a much deeper problem than the oppression of the Roman Empire. That it was indeed their sin that needed to be dealt with first. And this king would be the king who would conquer that problem before he would conquer their enemies. And so Christ signifies that he's the king. And then, of course, son of God is a reference to Jesus' deity, the reality that he is God in the flesh. Caesar was thought to be son of God, and all the heroes of Rome were also given the title sons of God, but there's there's only really one real son of God. This one, Jesus Christ. This idea of Jesus being the son of God, of course, runs throughout the New Testament, throughout the gospels, and it will run throughout this gospel, the gospel according to Mark. And in fact, it actually bookends the gospel here at the beginning and then toward the end in chapter 15, when a Roman centurion observes with his own eyes, the last breath and the death of the man named Jesus on the cross. And he proclaims, surely this was the son of God. It's interesting to note, and I'll remind you of it when we get there, but in Mark's account of the gospel, that was the first place that a human being recognized Jesus as the Son of God. Not in his miracles, though that was proof that he is the Son of God, but in his substitutionary atonement, in his death. There's a lot of people that want a lot of stuff from Jesus. But Jesus hasn't come to give stuff. He's come to give forgiveness and life. And so Mark wants us to understand that the significance of this gospel is so other than this world, is so out of this world, is so amazing that his readers do well to pay attention to it But the reality is that the significance of this gospel is just as significant for us today. There are still all kinds of false gospels proclaimed today. Some of them are actually called gospels. You think of the prosperity gospel, for instance. But many of them are not called gospels at all. Every one of them, however, presents to its listeners a supposed solution for all that ails you, a supposed hope, a supposed promise that everything will be better if you just do this thing. And so you think about, for instance, how wild non-Christians get over politics, They campaign on behalf of their candidates as if he or she were the Messiah. And their lives are completely crushed when they're not put into office. Now certainly there's a good and right engagement in politics. But we know that politics do not hold out the hope that the gospel of Jesus Christ holds out. Or take for instance the modern obsession with health. The gospel of good health. Some people live according to the gospel of exercise or the gospel of nutrition. The key to life, they say, is to treat your body well, to be careful what you put into it, to make sure it gets its proper exercise. After all, it's a temple. Now certainly there is a right biblical stewardship of our bodies, but Jesus himself said, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Listen, it's wise to be healthy, but you're gonna die. My personal motto is, if it's gonna kill you, it might as well taste good. (laughs) So eat bacon and donuts. I don't have a Bible verse for that. That's just free. It's wise to be healthy, but the reality is you're going to die. And there's all kinds of things, even natural things, that are going to give you cancer or whatever else it might be. The Lord has set the date of your birth and the Lord has set the date of your death. It is our responsibility then, in between time, to follow Jesus Christ. The fact of the matter is that the only true and living hope that you and I could ever face, or could ever find in this life, is exclusively in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that alone. And Mark makes it abundantly clear in his very first verse, the significance of this gospel. Secondly, then, I want us to think about the deep roots of this gospel in verses 2 to 3. The deep roots of this gospel in verses 2 and 3. There, in verses 2 and 3, Mark writes to us, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This gospel of Jesus Christ began before the constraints of time. It was conceived already in the mind of God in eternity past before creation itself. But the reality is it entered into the confines of time. It entered into creation at the precise moment that God wanted it to. But it was a gospel that was ancient. Mark here cites or, or references and attributes his quotes to Isaiah, but the reality is he first quotes Malachi. Malachi chapter three, verse one, is the first half of your quote, and then the second half, verse three there in Mark, Mark one, the second half belongs to Isaiah chapter 40, verse three. So why then is Mark saying I'm quoting Isaiah even though he quotes Malachi as well? Did he make a mistake? Can the inspired scripture make a mistake? Does the Holy Spirit make a mistake? So, no, we know he didn't make a mistake, but what he was doing was not being as concerned as we are today about literal accuracy, but what he was doing was following suit with what was common for his day to see Isaiah as the major of the prophets, as the, the most significant of the prophets and to show us how Malachi points us back to a promise that had already been given in Isaiah. And I think, I'm convinced, that also what Mark is doing in just these few words is telling you that this gospel of Jesus Christ is the gospel that Isaiah had been preaching 800 years before. We don't have time, but do a word study, if you're interested, on good news in the book of Isaiah. And then you will understand at an even deeper level what Mark is talking about. This gospel has deep roots. He quotes Malachi first, and since we're not too far from it, let me ask you to turn to Malachi chapter three. If you know where Matthew is, it's before Mark, then you can just hang a left and you'll find yourself quickly in Malachi chapter three. It's the last the last book of the Old Testament. And this is most likely another reason why Mark quoted from Malachi, because this was the last word that Israel had heard for 400 years. It had been total silence from God for 400 years because of their sin. He stopped speaking to them just like he said he would in Amos. And the last word they got was from Malachi, that they should look for a forerunner. They they should look for a witness, someone who would proclaim a certain message to them. In Malachi, starting in chapter 2, verse 17, there's this argument between Yahweh and his people. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? Here's the Lord's answer. By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? And then we find our quote. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, notice, we'll see this again, but notice who the Lord says is coming. He is coming. The Lord is coming. He'll send a messenger to prepare the way and to proclaim, hey, someone is coming. It's God himself. So get yourself ready. And notice what he continues to say in verse 2 but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Did Jesus not bring a refining process to the nation of Israel? One of the things you'll, you'll notice about the view of Jesus that the Old Testament presents to you. It's, it's out of focus, of course, because the New Testament brings clarity to it, but it, the first coming and the second coming of Jesus are often overlapped together so that you're not quite sure where one begins and the other ends. Jesus will, when he returns, bring a refining process, but the reality is the refining process of Jesus Christ is happening right here, right now, even in this room. And so he asks, who can endure his fire? Verse three says, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. So the refiner will come and he will refine you And then you will be able to worship God. So he quotes from Malachi chapter three, and then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40. So go ahead and turn there if you don't mind. Or even if you do, I guess. Bob read this earlier. It's a once again, an overlap of the first and second comings of Jesus Christ. It's hard to understand, but I think, and I'm convinced That the reality is that we see spiritually now what we will one day see physically in Jesus' second coming. And so there are multiple proclamations of gospel in Isaiah. And this is just one of them. God says there in verse 1, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Do you see what God's point is? Be comforted, my people. I've got good news for you. He says speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her for that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins which is not a proclamation of judgment but a proclamation of reward Verse 3 a voice cries in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord make straight in the desert a highway for our God every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places, a plain. What he's saying there is that when a king comes, the process of preparation for the king was to go before the king and make sure that you have a construction process that makes the road flat and even. You don't want the king hitting potholes, so, what is God saying that this voice would do? The voice would say, Get the road ready, he's coming. And we'll see what that meant in the preaching of John the Baptist in just a minute here. Verse 5 says, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. What is meant by verse 5? How is the glory of the Lord revealed? in that little baby boy who was born in a tiny insignificant town placed in a gross manger and yet proclaimed and worshipped by angels by shepherds by wise men who were Gentiles the glory of the Lord is revealed in Jesus Christ And you might expect the glory of the Lord to be a bright, shining, blinding light, and it is, but here, quite clearly, the glory of the Lord is also seen in the pages of Scripture every time you read about Jesus. Do you want to know the glory of the Lord most especially? Do you want to have a most clear picture of what the glory of the Lord looks like? Look at Jesus, and don't stop. You can go on and continue to study to look at Isaiah 40. I'm looking at the clock and we need to move on here, but I just love verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. What did what did Jesus call himself? The good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. How will he tend his flock? He'll die for his flock. And then he'll scoop them up in his arms and he himself will carry them and he will provide every need that they would ever need if they would just look to him and not look to the world. If they would just realize that everything they have is a gift from him and everything they do not have, they do not need. But he himself fulfills every, 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 longing desire of the human heart. Nothing satisfies like Jesus satisfies. Let's go back then to Mark chapter one as he continues to unfold this reality. We see the deep roots of the gospel. We see that this gospel was proclaimed long before it was made clear that its beginning culminates with Jesus Christ's coming. This gospel had been promised. This gospel had been planned. This gospel then was proclaimed by a man in the wilderness. And this takes us to the the third and final thing that I want you to see this morning We've seen the significance of this gospel, the deep roots of this gospel, and now third, we see the witness of this gospel, the witness to this gospel, verses four to eight. After quoting scripture, ancient words that were written hundreds of years before this time, Mark moves immediately to the one who fulfilled these words, John the Baptist, and you can tell your friends he dunked them all the way. He didn't sprinkle them. You got it. So John, or, uh, Mark 1.4 says, John appeared, which is a funny word. Appeared. It fits with the immediacy and the style of Mark. John didn't just appear poof out of nowhere, but that's the picture that, jo- that Mark is painting for us. It's as if he just appeared. The scripture told about him and then poof, there he was. What is Mark doing? Mark's saying that God is no liar. Mark's saying that every word of God is true and it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The yes and amen of every single one of God's promises. And so we see this witness John appeared and what was he doing in his appearance? He was doing two things. He was baptizing in the wilderness and he was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Mark Shows John here as the fulfillment of that promise of scripture, as the messenger, as the witness that God would send. The witness who would declare to the people, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. And how were they to prepare the way of the Lord? What would the straight paths of God look like? A reformed life. See, Jesus didn't care about potholes. And he still doesn't. Jesus cares about the way you live your life. And in context here, he was preaching a message to the people of God, Israel. Because just like they were in Amos, they were way off. And so he says to the people of God, you might say I understand a different dispensation and all that, but go with me, you might say he talks to the church folk. And he says, hey, you hypocrites, you brood of vipers. And he doesn't say that here, but he says it in other gospels. He says, hey, you that play as if you know God, get your life in order because the king's coming. What was the baptism to symbolize? The baptism was to symbolize a cleansing and a renewed life that was now a life that demonstrated repentance. What is repentance? Well, the word means a change of mind, metanoia, change mind. But it looks like a complete transformation. Not just a renovation where you take down a few walls, but a demolition and a new build altogether. Now, don't be confused. This is not... In our time frame. What it means to be baptized now and what it means to repent now is slightly different for the non-Christian than it was here in this time. But what John had made abundantly clear and was making abundantly clear was the people had a problem with sin and they needed to deal with it because the Lord himself was coming. And so he baptized and he proclaimed, he preached to them. And you can look at other gospels and you can see what he preached. I have no idea why verse 5 says all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem are going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river, confessing their sins. I have no idea when, why they were doing that when John called them things like brood of vipers when John told them in their face that they had a problem with God, a sin problem, and the only way that they would deal with it was to repent of it. Why would you go and listen to that? Because it was a work of God, that's why. This was not the, this was not the foolish TV preacher's The Instagram preachers that are trendsetters or whatever that word is. I'm not cool, so I don't know all the cool words. The ones who pay more attention to their sneaker game than they do the text of scripture. The ones who just seek to gain a following so that they can build mansions and fly planes that they own themselves. The ministry of John the Baptist was an in-your-face, I'm-going-to-tell-you-you're-wrong type of ministry. And yet it worked. Why? Because it was a movement of the Spirit of God. Every revival that has ever happened has been a movement of in-your-face, you're-a-sinner type of preaching. And it has worked. Not because of the preaching, but because of the God who's behind the preaching. And so they came. And not only were they baptized, but they were confessing their sins. They were saying, John, you're right. And most especially, they were saying, God, you're right. I'm wicked. I'm a sinner. I'm more concerned about myself and my kingdom than I am yours, God. I'm more concerned about building up my life and accomplishing my purposes and my dreams and my goals than I am with picking up my cross and following you, Lord. And so the witness proclaimed to them, he baptized them, and then verse 6 tells us what he looked like, which just kind of leaves you scratching your head, further evidence of why in the world would they go listen to this guy? Now John was clothed with camel's hair, probably not Gucci camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt, which many of us are wearing today, but this was the garb of a prophet. It was probably an untanned, just sort of cut it off the cow, let it dry, strap it on kind of a belt. He wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. John had nothing in himself to make himself popular. Why would you go to a guy and listen to him who eats locusts and wild honey? I mean, you know, no offense to whatever you choose to eat, but it's just kind of strange, isn't it? the reason they went to him was of course that it was a movement of the spirit of god but it was also because they knew who this reminded them of elijah the prophet which second kings chapter 1 verse 18 says is exactly how elijah was dressed and what does later on in jesus' ministry after john's death who does jesus call john elijah John came as a figure of Elijah, not Elijah, you know, the spirit of Elijah embodied, all that mystical weirdo nonsense, that doesn't, that's not biblical, it doesn't happen. But he came in the footsteps and in the example of Elijah to do the very thing that Elijah did. What did Elijah do? Elijah proclaimed to the people, to the king and queen, that they were sinners who needed to stop worshiping Baal and worship the real God. And it got him killed, just like it will get John the Baptist killed. And so they hadn't heard from a prophet in 400 years. None of these people had ever heard God speak through a prophet before. And so they were intrigued. And they went to hear. And they believed his message. They realized that they did have a sin problem. And that it needed to be dealt with. And only God could deal with that sin problem. Have you realized that? Have you realized that? That you have a sin problem and only God can deal with that sin problem. But the gospel of Jesus Christ says God loves to deal with that sin problem. He has already accomplished everything in order to do it and do it to the full And then verses seven and eight tell us what John's message was. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The entire purpose of John's existence was to preach that he was unimportant and that someone significantly important was coming after him. That was his entire existence as the witness and the forerunner. This is why Mark, I think, doesn't include much about John. You can read more about John in the other gospels, but Mark isn't concerned with telling you much about John because John wasn't concerned with telling you much about John, but much about Jesus, John was not the point, he was the pointer. And so John's message was that, hey, you guys think I'm great. You've all come out here into the middle of the wilderness, which is a word play we'll pick up on later. You've come out here in the middle of the wilderness to listen to me and to be baptized by me. But I'm telling you, there's someone more important than me coming and he's the one you really need to listen to. Why? Because I'm dunking you in the water, but he's going to dunk you in the Holy Spirit. John baptized with water as a symbol of cleansing. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit as a reality of a new life. What does the new covenant say? God says, I will give you a new heart and I will put my spirit in you. This is what it means to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. It's not a second blessing. And it's not something that's for special Christians only. It's for Christians. Even loser Christians like Mark. If you know Mark's life, then you know that he got in trouble with the apostle Paul who had a yelling match apparently with Barnabas and there, the scripture says there arose such a sharp disagreement, which is a really nice way of saying it, that Paul went this way and Barnabas went that way. Why did they disagree? Because Barnabas wanted to take Mark on the journey and Paul said, no, we're not taking that guy. He abandoned us last time. Apparently, Mark didn't have what it took on the first missionary journey, and he bailed out. He tapped out. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ always welcomes those who bail out. He welcomes the cowards, he welcomes the uncommitted that are just trying to get their lives together. He welcomes you. And he reminds you over and over again, it's not about you, it's about Jesus. Cling to Jesus, look to Jesus. And so this is what John's entire existence was all about. He says, I'm not even worthy to get down into the dirt and to unstrap his sandals. That was a job for slaves, slaves, And a job for Gentile slaves in particular. It was a job that was seen as too low for Jewish slaves, so the Gentile slaves would do it. And John says, I'm even lower than that. I'm not worthy to do that. Which is the motto of the Christian life, isn't it? I am entirely unworthy to serve you in any way, Lord. And Jesus says, I know, but come anyways. So we see then in these first eight verses of the gospel, according to Mark, the significance of this gospel, the deep roots of this gospel, and the witness to this gospel. So what are we supposed to do with that? Well, I think first of all, you need to ask yourself, in all honesty, is this gospel the most significant thing to you? If this gospel is the most significant news whatsoever about the most significant person who is alive today, is it to you? And in order to think through that question, I would just ask you a couple follow-ups. Does the way you spend your money say that this gospel is most significant to you? Does the way you use your time say that this gospel is most significant to you? Even over family priorities sometimes we'll see in Mark chapter three. Do the words you speak say that this gospel is most significant to you? Do the actions you perform say this gospel is most significant to you? Now, if you, like me, answer that honestly and say, you know what, I don't, I don't know that I can say yes to those questions, then this is still good news for you, sinner. Because Jesus takes you in. And he forgives you. And he cleanses you. And he helps you to grow in love for him. So keep looking to him. Secondly, I would say in light of the fact that this gospel has deep roots that go all the way back in through the Old Testament into Genesis chapter three, and in fact, all the way into eternity past in the mind of God, then you can read and you should read your Old Testament with an eager anticipation to see Jesus and to see the glorious plan of God to save sinners unfold. It's not a dry set of facts So don't make it that. But just like I hope we saw in Amos, you will see the plan of God pop out everywhere when you understand that the roots go down deep. So be encouraged as you read your Bible. And then thirdly, in light of the the witness to this gospel, I would think that we should follow John's example as witnesses to this gospel, shouldn't we? Is there any greater or more appropriate way to spend our lives, to spend our whole lives than to witness to this gospel? I mean that in all honesty. Is there anything greater? Is there anything more significant, more important? So then do we? If you have to answer that like I do, that I don't, I can't say that I always do that. Well, then this gospel of Jesus Christ is good news for you. Yet, see God's grace not as a free pass, but as a motivator to get in the game. To realize that there's a savior who's beautiful and glorious and unlike every other savior in the Roman world he didn't stay high and lofty but he got down into the dirt and took on flesh to become the suffering servant who would lay down his life there's nothing better to talk about than this gospel